You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's your host, Katie Burke. Today, I have a special guest on the show. It is Doug Lodermeyer from Minnesota. He is a call and decoy collector, historian, all things waterfowling, basically. Um, specializing in Minnesota, or do you branch out from Minnesota? I really, over the years, I have uh, definitely um, concentrated on Minnesota, and, and that's my area of interest. Well, welcome to the show, Doug. Well, uh, nice to be on the show, and nice to see you again. Yeah, um, I guess we got to see each other last in Chicago, which, if people listen to this show, they know a little bit about the North American Decoy Collector Show. I um, interviewed Rick last year. Nice, so. yeah. I think that's the last time we got to see each other, but you're in town, which I'm really excited about, a new exhibit coming in of your calls and a little bit extra, not just calls, but a little brought, bit more. Well, you know, most of the uh, call makers or a lot of the call makers dabbled in other things as well, including decoy making and that sort of thing. So uh, so for some of the calls that cross-pollinated like that, the call makers that cross-pollinated, I brought in some decoys and some other examples of some of their works. So I know... I mean, some call makers across have a little more than just calls, but does Minnesota in general lead to more like call makers and decoy car? Like, do they kind of have more jack trades in Minnesota or is that? I, th- I think that's fair to say. I, say. I would say that they did did a lot of both of them. Okay. You know? And you, you think about the, the, the type of people that were doing that. And they, you had a lot of, uh, you know, hard-headed Norwegians and Swedes and all that sort of thing. Right. And, and they really felt like they could make so- something themselves just as good as something that could be store-bought. And, you know, back in those times, too, you know, the earlier, the earlier we go, Time was something they had more than than they had money. Okay. So, so they 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 all they all were entrepreneurial in that respect. Okay. Yeah. Because like in Arkansas, Tennessee, you seem to find like 
just a call maker. Correct. Right. Yes. So in here, there, you kind of like we have multiple, multiple examples of people that did that. Maybe made decoys. Maybe made calls. Maybe made spearing decoys as well. Oh right, yeah. yeah. Forget about that. Or were artists or, or something else as well. So there was a lot. There was a lot of cross pollination. We have not talked about spearing decoys on here, obviously because we're ducks. But that's a whole. That's other, a whole. Nother, <laughs> that's topic. a whole other world entirely. <laughs> yes. So we may not get into that. Um, so. Every time I have someone new on the show, I really like to go back a little before and talk about your introduction into hunting and waterfowling in general. So how did you get into hunting and um, what kind of sparked that joy and love to stay a part of it? You know, so I, I have a really interesting path into into that world. So I hope we have a lot of time here. Oh, but yep. I, I, I'm, All the I'm time gonna, I'm going to ramble on a little bit about okay, that because it's, 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 it's sort of interesting. So... I was born in a little town. I was born in Little Falls, Minnesota, which is a small town in north central Minnesota. I didn't live there very long. My father was a printer by trade, so we moved around quite a bit. So from there, he moved down to Malacca, Minnesota, then St. Paul, and then eventually settled in Minneapolis. So I grew up as a as an inner city Minneapolis kid. Um, fortunately, Minneapolis is a nice city because we have a, we have great park system and lots of lakes and and that sort of thing. But I always had a love of the outdoors, and I always enjoyed being outside more than I enjoyed being inside. And I spent a lot of time going down to uh, city lakes and and fishing. And on my drive down here with my friend, but we were talking about it. I said, you know, a guy could walk down. I'm talking about probably you know in the, in the 1960s. You could I could walk from my house a mile down to the to the chain of lakes in in Minneapolis, and I could pick up bait on the way. I would pick up. Uh, uh, leopard frogs. I would pick up uh, hoppers, and uh, some, once in a while, if I was lucky, I'd look in a window well and I'd find a salamander. And we would go down and we would fish with that. So I, I was an urban urban uh, uh, fisherman. I I was fascinated with firearms. My dad was in World War II. He was in uh, he was over all over in Africa, Europe, and all and uh, in in the service and was saw action. He came home from the war and his position was he didn't care if he ever picked up a gun again. Fortunately, he understood my desire to want to handle firearms and learn to shoot and so on. So he got me in, involved in the right organizations. He got me involved with um, with camps, which goes back to Boys Boys Club of America, which had a camp. And I, so we had a we had a club in the city, and they had a camp that was up at Willow River, Minnesota. At at that camp, they had firearms instructions, and we got to we got to shoot firearms, and we got to shoot uh, you know bow and arrows, and learn archery, and camping, and cooking, and outdoors, all things outdoor. Fabulous opportunity for a kid like me, and that's really where I cut my teeth doing this. And I'm talking about nine years old type of stuff, nine, ten, ten years old. Um, so we had a great opportunity to do that and learn boating skills, um, canoeing, all those types of things. So that was really my entree and my introduction in, into some of those sports. From there, it was a matter of finding somebody that would would take me hunting. So that was the, that was the next the next thing for me. So, I mean, I dabbled a little bit with it, with my grandparents who had farms up in North, North central Minnesota, um, up, um, up by Lastra piers and that, in that area, but it was crow hunting and some, a little bit of varmint and some, some odds and ends like that, but not, not what I wanted to do, okay. which would be upland bird hunting, duck hunting, goose hunting, that sort of thing. So I guess from there, I started looking, I guess I started looking for people that did those types of things. And I was fortunate in, in, in my teens to run into a uh, friend by the name of Bill Brooks from Minneapolis, who was very much into that, into that sort of thing too. His father also didn't hunt. So but he had he had friend his father introduced him to some friends of his that did so we started glomming on to these people to take us hunting we this pre you know pre having vehicles or anything right. like that so we would start getting involved with them one of the neighborhood guys was a man by the name of Dan Brennan Dan Brennan was a uh, accomplished outdoor writer. He wrote for all the big three magazines of the time. He wrote some stuff that was critically acclaimed. Uh, one of our bombers is missing uh, on his World War uh, II experiences. He was a big time hunter. 
And he didn't mind taking us under his wings. Of course, we, we got all the dirt work, right? Right. He has to ask. But, like, yeah, but we had to learn. That was our apprenticeship. And there was other people like this that 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 were instrumental in, in letting us um, go with them and come with them and 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 learn our trade, if you, if you will. Other people was um, friends from school that fathers were hunters and had, fortunately for us, some property that, you know, some very exceptional property. Properties that we could hunt uh, up in northern Minnesota, and again, this is this is mid northern Minnesota, so I'm talking the area like the Hinkley area. Right. I mean, the landscape in that area, you have to. You're lucky in that that you were not that far from. No, you don't have to. You did not have to leave Minneapolis very far to be be in the either farm country or or right. or, or north country. Right. As simple as that. If I went south, I was in I was in pheasants. If I went north, I was in grouse. We were fortunate to have a. a, a, a another mentor who owned property in the Hinkley area, which is on the eastern side of Minnesota, right by the St. Croix River, separates Wisconsin and Minnesota. Not a group, exactly the best of waterfalling areas, but phenomenal grouse, phenomenal woodcock hunting, uh, deer, all that sort of thing. But the waterfalling back then, I'm talking, again, we're talking about you know, 70s, 80s, you know, 90s, was still, you know, quite quite good. Yeah. And the oh, properties yeah. they had, had um, rivers, backwater sloughs, potholes, and he had a lake dredged on this property. Oh, so, yeah. and it was, this is this is an exclusive, you know, 13, 1,500 acre property that we had. So it was really a, a great place for, place for us to hunt. Yeah. And we could hunt whatever we wanted to, you know, I mean, we could, we could hunt divers on the lake, we could hunt uh, mallards in the potholes, we could go in the backwaters and be, we would be hunting, you know, wood duck and, and, and teal, you know, so uh, it was, it was a great, it was a great opportunity for us. From there, we eventually got our licenses, and then we really started embarking. Then, then we, then we opened up a whole new world to All us. Right. But that's kind of how I got got into hunting. Basically. Do you still hunt with that friend? Unfortunately, he's probably one of the people that we talk about has grayed out. I don't know if he's grayed out as much as is is his bo- his physical limitations right. have caused him more more grief than being grayed out. So we we haven't hunted it as we did, but boy, we sure hunted for a lot of decades together. Um. So from there, when does the history of waterfowling become an interest? So the, the, that leads into a whole another thing, the, the collecting thing. And I've right. always said either you have either you have the collecting gene or you don't have the collecting gene. Oh, I 100% agree with that. That's like you can't a, make somebody be a collector no. if they're not interested in something like that. And I don't know where I, th- I think you're just born with it. I swear. So. For me, the normal path was, you know, I started collecting probably marbles first, mm-hmm. then baseball and sporting cards, you know, and, right. then, and then went from, and then coins, and it got a little bit more serious. And my father was a coin collector. My father was a collector of things. So I got the gene from him for sure. But then my interest in, in fishing and outdoors and waterfalling and hunting and stuff led me to want to start collecting um, uh, artifacts. It seemed, it seemed like a natural progression, and it seemed like— What was I, your first thing? So the first thing is an interesting story. <laughs> I always like the story. <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I was about 18 years old. I, I know I was 18 years old because the the um, the drinking age had just changed in Minnesota, and I was sitting at a bar. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting at a bar, and across the bar from me is a guy complaining loudly about his father who had just passed away, and all he left him was a bunch of old wooden fishing plugs of all things. Yeah. And I'm listening to him for the longest time across the bar, and I'm listening to him complain. And the more he complains, I finally said, I said, how many, how many plugs did he leave you? And he says, probably 50. So I'm getting, again, we're talking in the early 70s, and I said, this was a princely sum to me. I said, I'll give you 50 bucks sight on scene for, for him. All right. So we got <laughs> up. He, he, he ran out, came back with 50 old wooden plugs, and I became a lure collector. <laughs> that started me lure collecting. So I, did, so I was a lure collector first. Which made sense with my interest in fishing and so right. on. Right. Yeah. After a while, I, I somewhere somewhere I I guess I kind of lost interest in it. I I liked it. I still enjoyed it, but I kind of lost lost the interest in it. I was looking for something new to do, and it struck me. You know, I like you know with hunting. I that decoys would be a logical progression for me, and that started by going. And that actually started by going on an antique 
um, foray with my uh, soon-to-be wife and a friend, and I went along, and I really was an antiquer at that time. So I'm walking around, and the first thing I saw that interested me was an old paper mache carry light decoy, yeah. which I carried out of that store. Yeah. And I spent, you know, again, $20 for that, if, if that. That was my first decoy I ever collected. But that started me collecting decoys and wanted, making me start looking and learning more about decoys. So when I started collecting decoys, I collected decoys from everywhere. And and this is something that most collectors do. They, mm-hmm. they have no vision. They have no shape to their collection. They just start amassing things. Right. Um, That's very common. And I'm not any different than anybody else. So I was collecting whatever I liked, whatever interests me. And I realized it's. I started having a collection that made no sense whatsoever. Right. It was, in, it was fun, but it was it didn't make any sense. Um, over time, I started. I thought I'd start specializing. So I started looking at. I thought factory decoys would be a good way to go. So right. I started looking at. That fact- makes sense where you are. Yeah, and I started looking <laughs> at factory decoys, and Masons, of course, you know caught my eye, but Masons were already pretty well known about. So I started thinking, you know, and they were starting to actually get spendy by that time, by the time I was starting to right. collect. So I did some research and I looked around and I got, I, I, I liked Evans decoys and they were made in Lady Smith, Wisconsin. They were kind of a neighbor and close in my region. And I, so I started collecting Evans decoys. Well, I did that for a while. And I didn't then, know that actually. Yeah. And then, and then, <laughs> and then, but I still was collecting stuff from other places as well. Yeah. Eventually, um, you know, and, and I realized I had missed the the heyday or the entry place into collecting decoys. It was already starting to cost pretty serious money to have, put good birds on your shelf. Right. I, the, 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 it wasn't a secret anymore, and there was already auction houses, and there was all this stuff was going so on. So when when was this? I'm, st- I'm going to have to say I'm guessing we're talking in probably the 90s or something like that. Okay. Yeah, uh, early 2000s, something. something okay, something. Well, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, probably early 90s, closer to early 90s. So I started thinking again. I go, what what else is there? That What other opportunities are there. Uh-huh. And then it occurred to me, I go, duck calls. Yeah. There's a nice trapping for a, you know, for a, uh, for a hunter and something that's interesting. Uh-huh. Maybe I'll start looking at, looking into duck calls because that had, that had not really exploded yet no. at this time. And at that point, like we can say like, is Howard's book out yet? It is. And that was the, okay. that was his and Brian McGrath's book. Brian books McGrath's were the, the, Illinois book. That was, no, that was, the, his was another general book. He okay. actually, I he believe, beat Howard to, to the punch, but Howard's book was pretty much considered the Bible. Yeah, basically, yeah. It was, yeah. and I and I ordered that, and I started doing my research. You know, so I'm doing so I'm doing my doing the research. At first, I'm overwhelmed. I'm going, oh, this is too much. There's too much stuff out here. And I, how how do you what do you collect, and how do you collect? And, right. But then I started liking different things. I like this. I like Purdue. I like Chick Majors. I like you know. Right. I'm, so I'm seeing stuff that I like. I'm also going. I can't believe how much stuff there is out here. Right. So I started having to learn and educate myself a little bit more. As that goes on, got Brian McGrath's book. Looked, you know, educated myself with that. I again Howard's book, and then I start. I started looking for calls, and I started looking for calls in the usual places, decoy shows. Um, we have a great show up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I was on the board of directors for both the Minnesota Decoy uh, Collectors Association and the Minnesota Decoy Foundation, which charter was to preserve the history of waterfalling in Minnesota. Okay. Shows was a, a typical venue, flea markets, uh, maybe estate sales, um, right. you know, antique stores, that sort of thing. So I started, you know, browsing and cruising around looking for calls. And again, you're picking up calls. They 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 migrate, you know. So, yes, right. So, so I'm getting a Louisiana call. I'm getting a, you know, Illinois call. I'm right. getting something from California. I'm getting something from Minnesota. So at that time, was there the decoy? Uh, Call Collectors Association? Yes. That existed then. So then I found them. And then that was another kindred spirits. And they had a newsletter. And that was more education. Do you know when that started? I can't even I I can't tell you. But I think think we're talking in the 80s, 87, something like that. Okay, it wasn't very many people, though. No, there wasn't. No. I got in in the fairly early years of that. Right. And I guess for our audience to know that there's decoy collecting, but call collecting is like a subculture from that, it's yes. it's, a, it's a more niche. It's not nearly as big. I remember when we were less the call collectors were less appreciated at the shows, <laughs> but now we've we've learned to uh, co-mingle very nicely together. You do, and y'all, and I always find it funny at auctions. Um, the room will switch out. 
and when the calls come up, like all the decoy people, like go. It's it's going yep. less so, but it's still like the whole room will shift in a in a auction. And I'll notice when I go to view some some of the better collections that I've had the opportunity to view that uh, even the hardcore decoy collectors have a few few uh, call calls on their shelves. They as do, well. they do, they do. And I found more. Um, honestly, I found more people have calls that they that they got by getting decoys that people don't realize they have. Right, yes. Um, like early in their collecting because they just kind of came And together. if you think of it, it makes sense. If you have a per- Purdue decoys and that's your thing, how could you not have a Purdue call to, right. to show with that? I mean, exactly. just, it, it, it's, it, it makes sense. So you see some of that. They might not be hardcore collectors, but they they collect some things. Right. So I wound up collecting calls from all over, and I had started getting a pretty large collection together, but it was real scattergun approach mm-hmm. again. So I wasn't, it had no there was no vision or plan to it. I also realized I could not compete with, I'm a working guy. I, I wasn't going to compete with the guys that, that, that I was trying to compete right. with, whether it was on eBay and I got in pretty much on the infancy of eBay. That was a great way to get yeah. uh, more calls than than going through antique stores and flea markets and it opened up a broader spectrum. But I couldn't compete with the guys that, you know, had had had, had deeper pockets than me. And I realized I'm never going to put together the type of collection I it would like to put together. Right. So eventually, I sold off my whole collection. The whole thing. The whole thing. And <laughs> and I did the same thing with my decoys. All the decoys I had at this point, and I've sold it off with the with the sole intention of focusing on Minnesota decoys and calls. That okay. was my that was my plan. So you got this money, you got all this cash. Yes. You're ready to get yeah, go. Yeah, kind of. Well, how, did, how did your wife feel about this? This move? She uh, she tolerates my uh, <laughs> my, my foolishness. She has no idea what I'm doing, and she really doesn't care. But she understands. <laughs> it's my, like me and fantasy baseball. Yeah, there you go. So she, but she understands, and she's a she's a good trooper. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll say that about her. Uh, but she understands my passion, just yeah. like dogs and hunting and everything else I do. She she goes. Well, I bet she's in it on for the dogs. She probably likes the dogs. Well. She, she used to like to say when I told her I, I'm I'm going you know I'm going hunting. She says I don't care. Just take the just take the boys with you. I said that was the plan. And I was you know just take the dogs with you. I said that's the plan. So that works out pretty good. But I did. So that's what I did. I kind of thought thought about it. I go you know I'm really interested in the history of Minnesota. And there's a lot of uh, and a lot of people don't realize how much waterfalling history is in Minnesota. Right. We, we don't. <clears throat> excuse me. We don't lead the nation anymore. We're not. We're not as as important of a waterfalling state as we once were. But there was a t- time not very long, and that I grew up in, we led the nation per capita on hunters. We sold more licenses. We shot more waterfall. It was pretty tremendous. Yes, and- I'd say Minnesota and Wisconsin were the leaders there for a. A good long time. But young guys growing up now don't recognize the importance of Minnesota, and they don't know the history going back and how much of a waterfalling destination this was, and that people, you know, uh, captains of industry from the east would come to Minnesota to hunt. That right. was the place. Heron Lake, Lake Christina, uh, Marsh Lake, all these places. They, they, that was that was the epicenter of duck hunting in those days. Yeah, I don't even know if you know the story, but like the rebirth of the Canada Gooses from Minnesota. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I'm That's very just, familiar with yeah. that. Rochester, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, that's a whole nother. That's another story. That's a whole nother story we won't get into, but it's. But the history and, and going back to market hunting and all of that, that, that is very important history comes from Minnesota. And and you, you start looking at the important people from the standpoint of uh, James Ford Bell and what, what he did and what he meant to um, waterfalling and the, the Heron Lake decoys moving to the um, Delta Marsh and the Ducharmes and the and the, the connection between Canadian decoys and Minnesota decoys. Uh, it go, I mean, I could go on the artists that have come from here, oh, the waterfalling um, history. We have probably the Probably rich, the most. Yeah, I would probably think. the richest history in that, too. So waterfalling has always been a very important part of Minnesota, and I've always been interested in it. So that's why I decided, why aren't I not collecting Minnesota stuff? That's what I started focusing on doing, and that's what I, that's what I did. Now, a decoy... Or a call. It's great. At first, you're just trying to amass things and find these pieces, right? Right. But eventually, it's 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 just it's just an artifact. 
if you don't have the backstory and you right. don't have the history, it what does it really mean? And that I've always been interested in history and consider myself something of a, a historian and 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 uh, uh, inquisitive by nature. And I started doing doing research on it. I've got more and more interested. And the more I learned about one call maker, for instance, or a decoy maker, the more interesting it, it got. Now the piece became kind of came to life. There was a there's a story in a history uh, to the call. It wasn't just a piece of wood, inanimate right. wood. At the Minnesota Decoy Show, I met a gentleman who was one of our better call makers, one of the best call makers in Minnesota, and probably was the mentor to more young guys uh, that are making calls in Minnesota. And we have a lot of good contemporary call makers in Minnesota. Uh, his name was Paul England. We called him Doctor Quack. He's in our. Uh, he's a fellow Hall of Famer in uh, Minnesota Waterfall Hall of Fame. Uh, he's a call maker. He was a, he was a historian, uh, always interested in the history of calls. And, and he was to, willing to teach. Well, yeah. Well, well, not all call makers are. No, he, and, and, and that's unusual. I would say, yes, he wasn't, his stuff wasn't proprietary. He, he was ready to share it with anybody that okay. was interested in greatest guy in the world. He recently passed away. We just lost Paul, but, uh, there's, an, I don't think there's anyone in the call community who doesn't, who doesn't know who Paul England was. And right. he was very early uh, uh, in with the Call Makers and Collectors Association of America, and he was writing a lot of articles on Minnesota uh, call makers for for the uh, newsletter. So he was really pumping up Minnesota and was, you know, okay. he, he was a homer for them. Right, good, yes. good. But he, at the decoy show, I would, I would visit with him, and I was always – always drawn to him and that was the one place I really wanted to go to hit the corner where Paul was holding court and he had a large um, cases of old Minnesota calls that he had collected and I was always just fascinated by him and I spent so much time looking at them and picking his brain and talking to him and that's uh, that's that's where I really got the bug for Minnesota calls by looking at his calls. I go, I, I would look at his collection and I would think, wow, there's really a lot of stuff. We have a lot of history right here, and it's largely unknown. Eventually, I got the idea. So I'm starting to research these call makers. And I'm getting a file cabinet full of information and a morgue filled of pictures and letters and correspondence, everything I can find in information, uh, obituaries, you name it, on these uh, different call makers. It occurred to me it doesn't do me any good to, to have this in a file cabinet and just the information for myself. And I approached Paul one day at the uh, decoy show and I said, what do you think of the idea of doing a book on Minnesota call makers? And I was inspired because Christensen, Bob Christensen, mm -hmm. did his book on Illinois. Right. That was the first book that I knew of, and I think was, uh, specific to a state. Mm -hmm. And I go, you could do a book on Illinois makers. Why couldn't you do a book on Minnesota makers? Now, what I haven't talked about is my background is as is a graphic artist, designer, art director. I've had my own agencies. Um, I've worked in the publishing business my whole life. Uh, I worked for Honeywell. I worked for Corn Ferry. And it's a natural fit for you to go into that. that was yeah. my primary duties there. So now I've got the passion. Now I've got the knowledge. Now I've got the skill set and the resources. And who's so if I don't do this book. Who's going to do the book? Right. So I broached the idea with Paul, and I thought he was the first person I mentioned it to, and I thought I'd gauge his enthusiasm. Well, of course, he lit up like Christmas. He grabbed me by the belt. I got people I wanted, want you to meet. He became my biggest cheerleader and my biggest conscience of doing that project. Okay. And, of course, he had— he had the, a lot of research. He, so had he, the, he had the goods. He had already been doing some of this stuff. So did he share all that with you? I remember he was the first— um, so when I did the first book, um, the first book I wrote uh, for L my L&M Press was uh, Minnesota Duck Calls, Yesterday's and Today's Folk Artists. Uh, that was in 2003, I believe I published that. Okay. Um, first collection I photographed and was Paul England's. So I was okay. going to go over to his house and photograph his collection. And he says, no, just, just, just take them. I said, just take them. And we knew each other, but we only knew yeah. each other, you know, I, I would call it casually, yeah. you know. We weren't going out to dinner or anything like that. Yeah. You, you know, I met, I knew him from the from the shows. Right. And he said, oh, just take them with me. You just take them. You can bring them back when you're done. I thought, wow, that's a lot. That's a leap of faith and trust. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you want to, uh, how do you want me to take these? And he starts putting them into a, into buckets and just 
putting them on top of each other. He says, yeah, they're just wood. They ain't, you, can, you ain't going to hurt them. And to this day- That I, hurts my museum I, brain. It, it does, but I'll tell you, <laughs> to this day, it's always flavored my thinking. And I was talking to a, a, another gentleman. He says, how did you pack all those calls to come, go down to Memphis? Baby socks. I, I, used, yeah, I used to do that. Yes. I would buy girls little girl socks, but I didn't even do that. I just put I put them in rows with a divider between them and another divider and stacked them. And there are two boxes, and I go, nothing's going to happen to them doing. No, that. I've never had anything happen, but you know, I, I wouldn't ship them that way. But with me carrying them, I've done so many shows all over the country. Oh yeah, you know, you you, you learn that you learn that you could that you're not going to hurt them. I digress, but uh, one of the First times I ever heard about the little girl socks, and I can never stop picturing this. It's Howard Harlan is who told me about them, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, you get some weird looks when you go up in Walmart and you buy like fifteen packs of little girl socks." And you know what? I thought I thought I was the only guy that did that, but I walked into Target one day and I go, "Whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of a lot of guys had the same the same yeah. inspiration apparently. Yeah. He says you get some funny looks when you do that. Oh, you do, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, we digress. But yeah, so um, so that's what got me started. That's where you and got that, started on the book. Yeah, and that's what got me started on the books. And of course, that really re- led into some really digging, so and really I have, exhaust. I have a lot of questions about that. So the first is the 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 first is the decoy book. I didn't realize they were in the the call book, and then it's the decoy book. What's the years between those first two books? Okay, two thousand and three, I believe, was the um, and I'm going by memory right now. But two thousand and three, I think I published the. Uh, Minnesota Duck Calls. I think it was 2010 that I got to the Minnesota okay. Decoys. I, I don't think I realized there was such a big difference. And now the Volume 2s came out together. And the Volume 2s came out together because basically the idea of doing these books, I knew it would bring out more information out of the woodworks and we there would be more uh, more makers that would be discovered. And that's what happened. People got the books. People looked at the books. And, you know, oh, you know what? My, my dad made decoys. My father made calls or, you know, there's another guy up and, you know, so-and-so up in Holly, Minnesota that makes, uh, duck, duck calls. So I started gathering new information and starting to, starting to build another couple file cabinets full of information, which I go, all right, now I've got enough. Originally I was going to, I figured I'd have enough information to do a combined volume two of both the call and the decoy. When I got up to like fourteen, when I got up to about fourteen hundred pages, I go, I'm going to have to divide this into two books. Those books are hefty. They they are, but they but they really are exhaustive, and they're really extensive, and they really do, uh, you know, they really are the essential history of bull call making up to this date. Yes, and, and, uh, and decoys. The one thing I really enjoy about your books is the price guide. Um, yeah, that's not something a lot of people do, nobody, and it's pretty much for well, yeah, nobody really. I mean, you can get them through auctions and things like that. Sometimes collections will be posted that way, like separately, but not that much with calls at all. But because they haven't been auctioned that much, and and that's and that was I did that establish that by you know auction auction sales, eBay sales. So I I had literally two. File cabinets, you know, six drawers deep of eBay's over 20, 20 year period on Minnesota calls. I'd see a Minnesota call, uh, I would track it. I would sit, I watch the prices of it. I would watch prices at um, uh, auctions. I would watch it in private sales. Many of the sales I've made, sales I would watch at, and see consummated at shows. So I had a wide berth and of of. Um, ways of tracking this, and I spent 20, 20 years tracking it, so I'm very comfortable with the prices on it. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a price guide, but it's more than that because if you that's so, a history, yeah, it's history. But if you take a look at the the back half of the duck call book, the volume two. Oh, your book yes, definitely more than that. But yeah, yes. so it's got literally every Minnesota call maker, hundred percent full color call. So if and then and then it has a number by it, and then if you take the corresponding number, you go to the the table, and that table took me ten years to build. 
Alicia, o- over time. Thing, over time. This, is, this, is not, this is not 10 years of, you know. It's not an Excel file. sheet. It's like a really nice. It, it, was a, it was a lot of work. And I just picked at it a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time. If I tried to do it, it would have been so overwhelming. I would never have done it. But over a 10-year period, I built that table to go along with the calls. So I photographed the calls. I put them into the book. I arranged them. and But it, it'll tell you when that call was made. It'll tell you who made it. It'll tell you where they're from. It'll tell you everything about how the, what style of call that is, what it's made out of, everything that's pertinent. And then it'll tell you the rarity and scarcity of the call. And then it'll tell you a price. Yeah. And that's amazing, especially for like new collectors. Yes. To have that resource. That's what I wanted. So that's, basically, if you thought you had a Minnesota call, you would be able to go to that book. You would be able to find a picture that corresponded to it. You go, oh, that's that's that call. Then you would be able to say, it's you know, whatever. It's 206. You would go to the table in 206 and you would know everything you want to know about that call. So... Yeah, that's really, that's, I mean, I can't, that's so handy for somebody. I mean, just collectors and then new collectors. Yeah. And for me as well, like as a, someone who's really just interested in the history side and of things. And you know, things, it's really, what was cool about I it. I learned so much from it. Sure. And what's cool about it is, you know, if you should come to Memphis and see the collection. Yes, well, you for, should. They're, 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 you know, it's nice to come to Memphis. Great town to come to. The Pyramid, all that. The Heritage Center is fantastic, right? See the collection. If you couldn't, can't see the collection, you can't come to it. Literally every call that's in that collection is in, is in that book. Like I said, one hundred percent full. Though I full very size much collar. recommend looking at these things in person. But um, so anyway, about the book and your research for it, the stories they they are secondhand. Some of them are secondhand stories. Some are firsthand stories. What was your method about going to get? the stories about the carvers. So I'd look to first to see if there was something already published on it, right? Okay. So like when we talked about Paul England writing um, profiles of, a, say, a Ralph True um, from Hopkins, Minnesota for the Call Collectors Association. I, I I also wanted to have the book not be just all my perspective. I okay. wanted to bring in as many perspectives as I could. So if somebody wrote something of value, and they, especially if they had interviewed or saw knew this person and they were passed, and I couldn't, I could not go back and replicate that. I, all I could do is regurgitate at that point. Right. That's interesting because not all books. So, yours is different in that. So way. I wanted to shine as. So you you look at my books too. It really is. It is all things it's Minnesota. An encyclopedia. And I have <laughs> many art. Artists, you know, from Minnesota have contributed artwork to that, and they 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 willingly were happy to be involved with the project, mm-hmm. which I found I can't even tell you how gratifying it is to have someone like a Bob White or you know uh, Les Cooper or whatever tell me, yeah, pick what you want and you know re- reproduce it in the book. So there's there's artwork, there's articles, great articles that were written, um, historical pieces, pieces from the newspaper. I, so I, you had to play a detective. I mean, I was at the, you know, the, uh, like I said, I was combing, uh, you know, obituaries. I was combing um, uh, historical, the historical center. I was there for every day for years, mm-hmm. digging up information on these people, going through the newspaper archives, finding articles that were written at that time. I mean, I have articles from 1916 written about Nels Hansen. You're not going to get a better uh uh, story on Nels Hansen than it was that was written in, in the in the Zimmerman Times, you know. So right. so I I really did my due diligence and I really did a lot of a lot of digging and it was that's why it was you know ten years to produce the book and I, it, for me it wasn't about a deadline or anything like that it was about trying to get it right. Okay. When it, when I was when I was happy with it that's when I was going to publish it. Yeah, I mean it, that's good since it was like not. You know, you were doing it on your own dime and all that, so you weren't having the outside pressure. And yeah, the only pressure I put on was your my, own. my own pressure. Yes. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. What is what is a favorite story that you've found over your time? You can give me a couple if you can't choose. Hmm, favorite stories. <clears throat> well, okay, so from the de- from decoy perspective? Either, it doesn't matter. Oh, I'll give you uh, so the decoy from a decoy perspective, my the 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 most significant thing that came out of the, all of this research was uh finding finding Ole Gunderson from Ashby, Minnesota. So Ole Gunderson now is the second highest selling decoy at auction from Minnesota. Previously unheard of. Literally, I was going to going to press with the decoy book when I got a call from from an artist who was um, up in um, uh, up up in the Evansville area, uh, John House, and some of his artists reproducing there. Also a decoy maker, and he calls me. I'm literally g- g- getting files over to the printer and we're getting ready to start rolling presses. He calls me up and he says, I got some decoys you need to take a look at. And I go, I've heard this story a thousand yeah. times. I can't tell you how many times I've had to look at some decoys and it turns out to be a bag of herders decoys. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with the herders decoys. Great, great history. But it's, we, we know about herders we decoys. We know all about them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I said, well, I tell you what, I said, I, you know, I said, I'm really going to press. I said, but I said, he's, he, he was pretty adamant. I said, I said, well, at least can you take a couple of photos and just send them to me, you know, text them to me so I can at least see what they are. Right. I took one look at the decoys and I go, oh boy, I got to run up. I've got to run up to Ashby, Minnesota. <laughs> and I did. And I, it was hold the presses. I got to go up to Ashby. And I went up to Ashby and, and they asked me, what, what, what should we do with these decoys? He said, they've been in a barn for 50 years. And what, what should we do with these? And I said, he said they're all covered with soot and dirt and grime. And I said, I said, don't do anything more than maybe run a garden hose over them until I get there. Right. Yeah. So I'm telling you, I drive up that driveway, get up there. I'm up there the next day, uh, and I get up there and I go up the driveway and they're sitting out in the grass. And I knew it, as soon as I stepped out, I go, these are exceptional, right. exceptional decoys. So nobody knew. Who were the makers? Everyone up in Ashby and everyone around Lake Christina knew, probably knew this, but it wasn't known by the decoy community. Right. It's also amazing that with all the pickers that have been up combing that area, because this is Lake Christina, it's like Heron Lake. You know, people, yeah. it's not unheard of. Nobody, it's not like it's a secret, right? Right. Nobody has nobody's found this guy or done the done the work. And that's one of the unfortunate things I've always found with uh, especially in the early days of collecting. People were more about picking than find than getting the information yeah, in history. It was more amassing and a collection. lot of it was mishmashed or written down poorly and, you know, yeah. secondhand, third hand information. So I saw the decoys and I was I I, I knew there were some that really had something. So I I talked to him and I said, "Well, what do you what do you want to what are you going to do with these decoys? You know, how many decoys do you have? I got I got a I got a barn full of them. I got, got a barn full of them. All right. <laughs> I, and they said these are just this this are this is just six of the best examples that we had that I looked at. There's some 
pintails, which is very unusual species for mm-hmm. Minnesota for a yep. carver to make yep. back, especially back in the 20s or 10s. Right, the, yep. Or maybe even the 1800s. It could, it could be as old as that. Yeah, that's true. He, and so uh, he had that. He also had ringbills, also very unusual. You see a lot of bluebills in Minnesota, but you don't see anybody people that specifically made a ringer and he had um uh, canvas bags which of course was the Most was the duck on on Christina so that that made sense he also made coots and he, oh, yeah. he was making those for confidence decoys way back then oh wow so we're talking about the, t- the turn of last century right long, long story short I, t- I talked to him and he says well you think there's a, there's any value to these i said oh yeah i said there's value in these decoys he says well how much do you think and i said i said Thousands, and he says for all of them. And I said no. Individually, I said, I said for one of them. And he goes, yeah. I said the only question is how many thousands. Yeah. And they looked at me like I was crazy. I said no, I'm serious. I said these are these are these are exceptional decoys. So I said take you know you need to t- take these and you know p- put them somewhere safe and you know we'll look at the other decoys and see what you have. But they did have they did have some some the best decoys that they showed me had been saved were in, had been saved in the house. Okay. So somebody had one example of each of the species or a couple examples and had them in the um, in in their house. So those ones were much better than the ones that the ones that were in the barn. They had been hunted for 50, 60 years, and they had been in a barn for another fifty years. So right. these decoys, you know, they had the mouse chews on them. They had animals and, you know, they re- working rework on them, repaint, uh, you know, reheaded and stuff like that. But still, amongst them, there were still some pretty darn good examples of them beyond the about, beyond the six that I, I originally viewed. Well, anyways, once they realized that it was worth that much money, I, the, la- the next thing I heard is they had brought them and put them in the, uh, the uh, vault at the bank at Ashby, the <laughs> six decoys, because I, I told them, I convinced them, I said, I said, if you're looking to sell them, if you want, if you want to sell them, I said, the only way we're going to really know, because there's no, there's no precedence on these decoys. Nobody even knows who, the, who this guy is. Right. So I'm getting as much information as I can from them on this, this maker who turns out to be Oli, Oli Gunderson who goes by a, a, a myriad of other names, Ioli, because he was an old Scandinavian when somebody okay. said, who are you? Ioli. <laughs> so they called him Ioli. So he had, he had other names too. Um, uh, but um, uh, Oli Gunderson is the one we, we, we tend to call him by. So I, told, I convinced him that what we, we need to do is put them in auction. We need to put them in a good auction. I said, we need to, I'm talking a national audience, national auction. So I, I suggest to him, Guyton Schmidt at the National Decoy Show would be a natural place for that. Right. So that's what we did. And we took those six decoys and we brought them to to the um, to the auction where they were pretty much seen for the first time um, with very little information. There was, I had, because again, I was going, I was, getting ready to publish that book, I got as as much of a um, biography as I could put together from him, but it was very, very difficult and there and, and um, to, to put together. So it was scant uh, is right. what I would say, but it was, it was the broad strokes. At least it identified them. Right. I mean. And we knew who made them. We knew we could, we can confirm that and all that sort of thing. Well, they went to, <clears throat> they went to auction and it's like I said, they turned out to be the John Tax. John Tax from Osakis, Minnesota, is a number one decoy, you know, at auction in Minnesota. Um, Ole Gunderson, after that auction, came in at number two. I'm, and I'm going, I'm going by rough numbers here, but the the high head pintails that he sold, that he made, that were sold, that there was a pair of them sold at the auction. They went for like $39,000. So that was, that was pretty good. And then the, you know, the canvas bags. And what sold. year was that? Uh, was that auction? Yeah. God, that's a good, well, it was right about the time I published the book. So it had to be in 2010. Maybe I yeah, that's really good for 2010. Oh yeah. And, the- and again, I'm, I'm a firm believer, all those decoys that were sold at that auction in that year. So, you know, some, and, and the people at the bottom were very experienced uh, decoy collectors right. and that really gave them the stamp of approval. Right. Right. I'm very much convinced that the, you'll, the, those were a bargain and you'll never buy that. You'll not buy those 
those pintails for $39,000. No, not the next if that was 2010. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that that really set a precedent and and put, like I said, put, put the uh, stamp of approval on those decoys. So did all of them get sold at that point? Are they all now in I helped private them. hands? After that, so those, those six decoys got sold. I helped the family sell the what I call the second tier level of decoys, and then I probably uh, there was a third level tier of them, and that those are I I believe for the most part, except for a handful of them that I still know that are in family members' hands that aren't aren't selling them. The, the uh, I would say the the best of the Gunderson decoys are out and in collections right now. There was a lot of them left that I don't know what happened to them. So that's a that's another mystery. Yeah, interesting. But I don't hound people. You know, yeah. they know who I am, and they you know. Uh-uh. So they, if anybody wanted to contact me, that's great. But I, like I said, I don't I don't pester people when yeah, it's like that. That's interesting. But as a result. Um, like I said, I had very little time to do the the biography and the information and the research. I didn't have the time to do the research that was necessary to do that. So the second book, now volume That's, two, now it is fleshed now. out into, I probably have 30 pages or so on, on the, him, and it's... It's dead-on information. I mean, I've had a chance to... Is he the most extensive you did in the second book? Oh, definitely, because he's... John Tax, we had... We, we had him nailed in the first book. Everything was good there. Um, but Ole needed, more, Ole, Ole needed more work. And I mean, considerably yeah. more work. So that's kind of what happened with the um, uh, second book and why, why there is a second book, because there was a need to get that information out there. Interestingly... Um, the um, Ole Gunderson decoy, that once I saw him, I started doing some thinking and started digging back through some of my old auction catalogs. Right. Hey, did you find? I found a decoy that was represented as Upper New York State. Wow, that's a big jump. And, <laughs> and that sold to two very, very uh, knowledgeable collectors. And there was two of them, and they bought them and split the decoys up. And they were canvas backs. They were their early canvas backs that Ole Gunderson did. Um and they they sold for a pretty good sum. I th- I'm trying to remember seventeen thousand maybe for the pair, which is a good price. But they were represented as New York, Upper New York State. Uh, it, I remember that. I went back and I finally go, Ole Gunderson. Yeah. So 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 Ole had sold and he already had done fairly well for himself as an unknown as right. an unknown carver. And then more stories started coming up and I and. People started kind of go. I've got one of those decoys. I never knew what it was, but I always liked it and saw my shelf. So, just for our non-decoy people, describe what is it about an Ole Gunderson? Like when you see it, that you would have like recognized it as superior. It comes down to a number of things, but it really comes down to form. Form is form is at the top, and it was one of those things. Even the fo- even the photos that I saw, I go, oh, those really have those really have nice form. That's the number one driving thing. Then you start looking at things like the paint, and then I also know the history. I know the I knew they were old, and I knew they were from Lake Christina, and they were used on Lake Christina, so they have history and they have provenance, and we we can put a name on them. So we have all these things going for us. They had the great patina; they were very nice, mellowed. Everything was great about them, but the form first and foremost, and they were a very different shape than most decoys that people are are familiar with. And Oli did some really interesting things. Again, here we go back to the better mousetrap and the the the. Um, having more time than money, and and uh, I can do it. I can do it as well as a store bought. One of the cool things on his very earliest decoys, he had some trademark things that you can that become you know become Ole Gunderson, and one of them was his 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 eyes. He used window pane glass and he filed them round and he painted the eye color on the reverse side and set them into the decoy. Huh. Nobody no to my knowledge does anything yeah. like that. That's Ole Gunderson. He also utilized old printer slugs and used those for ballast weights. And he had a sense of humor because he was picking out all these uh, slugs. He could have used anything he wanted to from there, but he, a lot of times they were like laxatives and things like that. So I go, sense of humor. Yeah. Tells me the man had, a, man had a sense of humor. But the more I learned about him and from firsthand interviews of people that knew him, lived with him, he was a character. Right. Yeah. He, that's he, was, really he, was, interesting. A, he was a great character, but he lived duck hunting and, and decoy making. So that's, that's, that's an example. And that's one, that's, 
some of the things that are why why we needed to do the second book and to finish that off. Right, that kind of leads to my kind of my last big question. Um, why do you think it is so important to have such a comprehensive look at it? Whereas you know, you, there's other books that kind of give you the the main, but you, why is it so important to have that? Oh, that huge backlog of information. I, I, because I really believe it might be the only, only comprehensive look at it. So this is this 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 is it. This is this is our Minnesota Bible. It's, that's what yeah. I wanted. That's what I wanted to build. And like you said, I didn't have any restraints. Being the being the. I mean, I'm, you know, as, as my dad would say, chief cook and bottle washer, right? I do everything with the, this book, and it's my vision, and I can do it the way I want to. And I've spent a lifetime, like I said, in the industry where you're doing everything by committee, and sometimes committees just just kills kills a project. This is my vision, and I've lived or died by it, and it's been very well received, obviously, and I'm very, very grateful for that and very humbled by that. But I wanted this to be... If this is the only thing that's ever going to be done documenting Minnesota call makers and decoy makers, I want it to be comprehensive. But, uh, you know, I mean, and, and call making is really interesting because it's really gone through a renaissance in the last oh, years. Oh, 100%. Right. So I always, you know, somebody somebody asked me what's the biggest difference of, you know, call makers, you know, today versus, versus bef you know, the early call makers. And frankly, you know, I mean, technically they sound better. Yeah. I, I I truly believe you know, and um, not to say that some of the old call makers didn't make great sounding calls because they because they did they did but they're but technically we're much more advanced with our with the reeds and all machinery yeah. and how and, and materials that we use and and knowledge that that's been gleaned over the years. But you take a look at if you go to the fancy call contest at the National Wild Turkey Federation or at, at one of the sh at the show at, uh, in Chicago or whatever and you see what's being done fancy calls it's light years apart from what we would consider a fancy call from back in the you know the 30s or 40s an example would be like a purdue call which would be considered was considered a fancy call it's cool and it's, i love them but they're folky more than no, they're than than it's a great representation right. of a duck right but you take a look at what someone's doing now some of the call makers it's sculpture oh yeah I, and they're not Unlike decoy makers, call makers are not, um, they're not restricted by, it's not thought poorly by using newer technology to create them. You know, like that's, it's, you can still use a lathe and things like that. Whereas in, with, with ducks and decoys, it's a little bit, you know, you have the purists and the more modern makers. No, whereas, I know exactly what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, with duck call calls, you don't have that call restriction. Call makers, you know, call makers is 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 up to your imagination and your abilities, and every, the, the there's there's such a diversity in it, and it's acceptable. Right. But a decoy is still a working object too, from the standpoint. And there's oh, only uh -huh. so much you can do with a decoy. It has to look like a duck, and it should look like the species it's representing. And it's it's got to flow and it's got to work. So there's a lot of constrictions on that. But like I said, you take a call. I look at some of the some of the fancy calls that are made now and I go, where's the call in here? I got to figure out how, where's the call? Because it still has to, it, it still, still has to work. Yeah. They still work. Yeah. But I go, wow, it's like a, it, it, I would see it as a sculpture more than I would see it as a, oh, a yeah. as a call. Some of them you have to take like a piece off. They got oh yeah. <laughs> yep. And it, like I said, and, and the bar is raised every year. You don't see that with the, 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 decoys no because they have there's there's two camps you know there's the purest decoy carver and then there's the more modern correct uh, yeah so you kind of and and they don't necessarily all think well of each other <laughs> so well it's working working versus maybe um decorative well and, and a little bit of words. and then even in working there's a little bit of divide you yeah. know yes. yeah. so it's it's all it's much more i don't know nuanced than the call makers what's nice about that is where you're having, where decoy makers, which I would wish more, there would be more decoy makers, they're having a problem with growth, whereas call makers have exploded. exploded. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, total renaissance in it, and it's it's impressive. It really it really is. Yeah, and it's keeping that art going, which is great, and I, I like that. And that's another thing with collecting calls that we've just talked on here before, because you know Ryan Graves has been on, is they're you talked about Minnesota calls being more accessible at the time when you were collecting. 
calls in general are a little more excessive. They're getting to be more pricey as they've gotten more popular. Oh, absolutely. But they still are more accessible to, especially with all the modern call makers, to the newer collector. Absolutely. So they they make their... It's more open for new collectors. Well, to you know, into. and I see a lot of guys that get, you know, that that um, uh, whitewash the uh, contemporary makers. You know, I don't want to collect them. And I go, you got to remember, guys. They won't these, be contemporary they're forever. They're not going to always be contemporary. <laughs> and then you're going to go, I should have, I should have bought one of his calls oh, yeah. back when I could have bought it. Now I can't. Well, afford I, it. I don't have a, I don't have a call maker to give an example, but let's look at Schmiedlin's. Uh, oh right, that's a great example. Like it, they're blowing up. They're yeah. going. For crazy numbers right, right now, absolutely. It's, and people it's ten a years you're not ago appreciated until you're dead, right? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So one thing I always like to ask collectors before, because we have a lot of audience that is younger or might be interested in getting into collecting. Do you have any advice for someone that is wanting to get into this? Yeah, educate yourself. That's that's the number one thing. So, I, I mean, and I, and I have the opportunity. I have lots of young collectors and people coming into it. I shouldn't even say young collectors, but new collectors new, coming into, yeah. into, the, into the hobby. And the first thing I say is educate yourself. And that, that's what these – that's what the books are for. There's a million good books on decoys and, and call – there's a lot – there's getting to be a really nice library of call books out there. There is. So you should be able to – you need to educate yourself first before you just go hog wild and start buying like I did you know <laughs> go get yourself get yourself educated and then and then it, the hardest thing to do is then try to make and make a plan so right. something that makes sense and try to focus yourself and that's very very hard to do when you first start because it, it, everything's everything's interesting to yeah, you yeah it's at all that point. new and exciting it is and then but but if you could do it if you could make yourself do it it, it would pay you huge dividends <laughs> and you you would be happier down down the road so like i said find find an area a niche that interests you and and uh, focus focus on that and educate yourself as much as you can. All right. So is there anything you would like to say to our listeners before we sign off? Mm, anything you want to add? I'm excited about having these calls. So this, again, like I said, I was with the Minnesota Foundation, the Decoy Association, the books. All of this was part of the part of the mission to uh, preserve the history of Minnesota call makers and, and uh, decoy makers and the history of waterfalling in Minnesota. And for to have the opportunity, and I think I've done a lot to help promote and educate people on what's uh, Minnesota and has has made it uh, more more collectible to a broader spectrum of people. But I think this, to me, having the opportunity to put these calls where literally millions of people will have an opportunity to see those calls will help elevate the uh, Minnesota call makers and stature. And that's You that's, know, that's and exciting. you're in a tough area. Yeah, <laughs> I know. you're surrounded by Arkansas and Tennessee. All Illinois, these, everybody. Yeah, yeah, they're all right L- here. L- Louisiana, I yeah. am. But so we're bringing in, we're bringing in a, something that might be unfamiliar to a lot of people. Oh, 100%. But I will tell you this. I will. It will be one of the more diverse collections you're going to see because it because it, like I said, Minnesota guys, it, it was always about building a better mousetrap. And they, where you look at Louisiana has a school, Illinois kind of has a school. You start looking at Carvers, they have schools. Minnesota's just all over the board. Everybody thought they could do do a better job than the next guy, and they all had a vision. And so I think you're going to see a very diverse and very very, uh, I think it'll be very interesting to a wider range of people is what I what I believe. And that's my hope. Well, I'm excited. I know it'll be great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fun. Oh, it was my pleasure. I love it. Also, thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac, for putting this show together. And finally, thanks to you, our listener, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks.
and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 